the IBM Z applications and runtime podcasts. Your place to get the newest trends and direction for mainframe runtimes and environments. Hello everyone to our newest episode of the Z application and platform talks. Today, uh, we are very, very happy that we have another guest. So today, uh, actually, Kevin joins us, Kevin Studley from the from the team in, in IBM Z that is actually responsible for the whole CT, uh, as CTO for the whole platform and the whole software stack. So uh, happy to have you, Kevin. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, if you are interested in other podcasts, uh, feel free to, to look up our webpage. It's ibm.biz uh, forward slash Z podcast. Uh, or even podcasts, both would work. Uh, there you find also other podcasts on the topic of DevOps or in, in other topics. So feel free, free, free to listen to us. But you can also find us on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, whatever it is that you like. So happy to have you, Kevin. And uh, as we usually ask our guests, so how did you actually end up with IBM Z? And uh, how did you actually come here? Well, you know, originally in my career, I, I didn't work on IBM Z, and, uh, or as we call it in Canada. And uh, I was kind of in orbit, I guess, around the platform to some degree. I worked on some compilers that were also um, that same language would be delivered on, on, uh, on IBM Z, or in those days, as we called it, on 390. And, uh, you know, C390 and some of those, those uh, compilers were, were developed at that time. But I wasn't heavily involved in those. I guess I was influenced perhaps and shared some technology and I learned a little bit about the platform here and there and and so on but I was more on the as we say the distributed side and then I guess around the mid 90s um, at, around the time when Java was emerging there was quite a debate around so whether you could statically compile Java and in fact whether whether JIT compiled Java would ever be successful for regulated industries or you know, financial industries in particular were very suspicious that um, something dynamically compiled both would perform well enough and deterministically enough for them. So they were concerned about GC, they were concerned, concerned about the JIT compiler, and they were concerned that what they tested wasn't necessarily what they deployed in terms of the actual code paths um, being slightly different at uh, production time based on the order of class loading and so on and other kinds of concerns compared to what they had tested. And especially when they started learning more about how the JIT would um, respond to um, how the runtime was was behaving and um, compile methods at increasingly higher levels of optimization, they got very concerned, you know, in principle, in theory. So there was a lot of debate about it. And in response to that, IBM actually took a very interesting path at that time and created um, an alternative idea around statically compiled Java called HPCJ. High performance compiled Java, I believe, was the acronym expansion. And that caused quite a bit of debate because there were a lot of people who were working directly with Sun Microsystems at the time. And, you know, Java is very heavily specified and uh, you couldn't use the Java name on it. So we just called it HPCJ. I don't think we ever expanded that acronym. And, uh, and so that became actually fairly successful because it, it sort of ticked off those concern boxes from some of the larger clients who were actually IBM Z clients or 390 clients at that time. And so there was a, a, a period of time when you could get compiled uh, Java transactions and kicks. And uh, that, that product was actually fairly successful financially in that time. But ultimately, you know, Java is a dynamically compiled language at its heart. And so 
you know, it became increasingly um, that, that the JIT and the notion of dynam dynamicity in terms of what code you were loading just became more and more central to the language. And so it, it sort of became infeasible to, to keep up with this uh, compiled um, approach at that time. It's interestingly, hmm. you know, in the, in the current time, there's, there's a revisiting of that, of that set of ideas, certainly. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the traditional, at that time, the classic JVM from Sun Microsystems was, was heavily modified by IBM to, to support uh, all of its platforms, which is similar to the model today where, um, you know, we uh, develop a, a Java for our uh, mainframe and, and power platforms and, and on x86, in fact. And that, that habit and practice emerged as we sort of made, made it enterprise ready. Um, you know, I think Sun would, would probably fight back at that characterization. But honestly, I think we were, <laughs> we were partners in that time in, in, in building in the features and the reliability and the service structure and so on and so forth. Uh, to make it consumable by the enterprise. And, and of course, you know, as all such experiments, um, there are people on both sides uh, of the fence saying, no, it'll never work, um, won't scale, won't perform, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, other people saying, yes, it will. And of course, in the end, it only works out if it actually does. Um, you know, so, so the pundits were right in that case, or the pro-Java uh, mm -hmm. were, were right, and it became you know, in, in widespread use. And so to sort of answer your question, I never became part of IBM Z until 2015 at the sort of demise of software group after being the CTO of Rational. Um, I had a few different uh, chairs that I could, um, or seats, if you like, that I could take after that. And the one I chose was to be the, the CTO of Z software. Um, and so I reinvented myself, I guess, fairly late in my career um, to become uh, a mainframer and, uh, you know, I never looked back as you finally on the sunny side then that's really right cool. <laughs> well, it's a okay. platform i uh, i think too i'm really enjoying that aspect of it um you know so it's it's just so critical to our clients anyway that's not the topic for today i suppose yeah and i think uh i mean one of the reasons why why we invented you to our virtual couch today is that we actually kind of uh celebrate 25 years of java here and you already alluded that one could discuss if um, this 25th birthday, 25th birthday is actually correct because we had kind of a Java thing before. But but what happened then these 25 years ago? You said we became partners, but we made our own little journey to this JVM. So so what is actually, what did happen back then 25 years ago? Yeah, that initially, as I say, and, and the first time that we delivered um, the, the, the language on this platform and, and on power, I believe, we were using what was called the, the, the Sun Classic JVM, and that had a conservative GC, so it wasn't type accurate. Um, it was an older technology base. It had a fair number of deficiencies, actually. And we had to invest a lot on our side. Um, we created our own JIT compiler for it because, um, you know, to, to target our platforms that we felt was more appropriate for, for our particular platforms, the Tokyo Research Lab did that work and it was called the Tokyo JIT for many years in that in that story. But increasingly, um, this lack of type accuracy in the garbage collector and a bunch of other, I would say, technology features that were a little bit on the dead end side uh, limited the, the future for that, for the heritage of that code base. And that was called, I think, the sovereign, the sovereign JVM and JIT in, internally in IBM. And so a different project that I joined in 
I think 1997, um, similar to the time when Hotspot was being created at, at Sun Microsystems. And I remember actually going out to visit them when they were looking at buying the team or had just bought the, the small company that had was was the basis for the Hotspot technology. And, and they r really overhyped the, the readiness and the capabilities of that technology. And, you know, sometimes you can just <laughs> smell when someone's selling magic, when they're smelling snake oil. And that was what we concluded going away from that meeting. So we decided we, we could not ride, we could not rely on, on that roadmap um, for our own purposes. And, and so we created um, the J9 and, and Testarossa projects and so I led the Testarossa project at that time, and that was meant to be uh, an elite code generator for the multiple platforms that we cared about. And we knew that Sun would never um, care about our our platforms, and that was part of our reasoning at the time for for creating that infrastructure. And also, we had aspirations to uh, to go into the the J two ME space in the as the micro edition, and hmm. and, uh, and you see how Java in the embedded world. And in fact, you know, if you if you buy a Blu-ray player, I believe it still may have IBM Java inside it. So, and many phones of, of the day uh, also had IBM Java inside it. So we had a business selling into the embedded market, um, and we built from there. And that was sort of the deal I made with the D who ran that uh, that JVM, John Dwimovich, that uh, I was happy to lead their efforts around compilation because that team didn't have a lot of exp uh, expertise in the area of of compilers, um, hmm. but I had aspirations beyond beyond this micro edition market that they had started in. So we're going to go after the server market as well, and that you know that was part of the reason for um, our interest in that project because it was a type hacker at GC because it had a lot of technological advantages over over the existing uh, classic uh, JVMs, sovereign JVM that we've been using. And so over over the years. Uh, we started a PowerPC port. We started uh, uh, an IBM Z port. Actually, Mike Fulton did that work uh, initially, and uh, and tested out the separations of concerns of value proposition that we had created within that Testarossa code base um, to really be capable of delivering an elite um, exploitation uh, of a platform um, experience, while at the same time not having to write. You know, kind of a unique JIT for each platform, and that was one of the downfalls of the, I would say, the Tokyo JIT um, experiment. Which, you know, no aspersions on on them. They they started very very early and and, and mm. had to do something, um, but they had you know six register assigners and you know four different data flow frameworks in that code base, and they, you know, each JIT for the platform was substantially different from from the other. So it was a sort of an a non-scalable kind of unaffordable approach to this technology. So we took a different path and, and in the end, of course, you know, you've seen through history, um, that code base has been extremely competitive um, and delivered a lot of customer value in terms of exploiting our platform and being exploited by our platform um, for many years now. And that was the basis for, for um, my promotion to IBM fellow in 2004 was the, creation and contribution of that technology, which now has been used, you know, much more broadly beyond, uh, beyond even Java. Very interesting. And I think, I think we also, as, as a platform, the IBM Z platform also evolved a lot. And I mean, 
when when you started this project, we were still at the Z9 timeframes, maybe then later on Z10 with finally some more megahertz uh, to, to actually execute yeah. it. But we also generated a very, a very performant JVM, or you guys did at the time. And so... So, so another thing that I always uh, discuss with customers is, of course, that we actually can have a very symbiotic relationship to the hardware, and you can actually make some requirements as a as a as a JIT and say we would need this or that hardware instruction to make it even even more performant. Was that also something something yeah. that 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 you guys did a lot? Yeah, and I think you know, just delving into history a little bit, you know, this notion that the compiler team particularly the backend and optimizer code generator people in the compiler team should should sit in very close uh, collaboration with the CPU design team kind of emerged out of the rise of of risk computing in the in the 80s and i would say there were a lot of um, claims for risk uh, computing as to why it was superior to sys computing at the time and i think most of those have fallen by the wayside and in fact the the you know, the observation would be, I think, about about instruction set architecture that it's rather a weak lever. And I think the, you know, the um, performance roadmap of, of Intel and AMD and certainly some of the other, uh, you know, players in that field now increasingly ARM have kind of showed that it's not actually that strong a lever. So you can, you can overcome, um, you know, aspects of the ISA that maybe, um, you know, weren't at the time of, of, of in the 80s that, that weren't ideal and get to a similar performance experience. In fact, now we're going back the other way. We're trying to fuse uh, instructions because we can't go, we can't get faster clock rates. We're trying to fuse um, computations into larger instructions so that we can <laughs> do more per clock, uh, per clock. But, but the thing that I think has been a sustained and lasting uh, change in the way of working has been this notion that the compiler team and the um, and the hardware team should work in close collaboration. And I remember that was not the case. You know, it seems natural to us now, but that was not the case in when I first joined IBM. And you know, we had uh, a person who was on assignment from from Germany for the Z team to work with, and he was the only one who was allowed to talk to the to the hardware team. And that's his purpose <laughs> to sit in the compiler team was to be the person who could talk to them. And he couldn't share architecture documents. It was really hard to get the sort of equivalent of book four. Um, to, to and, and the chips were less interesting. So I think two things happened in the late 90s. Both the investment in, in IBM Z CPUs started to be much higher from a computational complexity and capability point of view. And we developed that close relationship with the CPU team. So especially um, in, in the time when Marcel Mitran started working in this technology, we were working very closely. And in fact, you know, invented a lot of instructions of, of broader applicability, certainly, but that's ones that made uh, creating a, a, a very capable JIT compiler on IBM Z um, much more possible and, and much higher performance. And so, and that's been, um, you know, kind of a drumbeat of capability that has come out of that, that world. And we've, you know, expanded it to do things for the COBOL compiler, but, you know, that's now it's sort of de facto behavior and you see the support for, mm -hmm. Um, you know, region-based GC, you know, sort of pause, pause less frequently <laughs> or pause, pause for less time and less frequently technology. We call it pause less, but that's a bit ambiguous in English. It's not that there yeah, are no it problems. is. It is totally. <laughs> it's also in German. So yeah, yeah we okay, have this discussion well, a lot. But that's, so. a, that's an unmatched technology, you know, I would say in terms of the, the, you know, widespread, you know, sort of mainstream chips to have that capability to support 
Um, you know, what we see with Java and going 64-bit in very large heaps, you can't afford to stop the world and, mm. you know, even with concurrent techniques and parallel techniques, you know, stop the world and do and do a global compact. You know, you need the ability to do region-based GC and, uh, and that's what this technology brings. So very sophisticated approaches, you know, indicating like a deep, long-term collaboration between, uh, between teams working on these sort of adjacent technologies. And I mean, you mentioned it, it is very funny because, of course, uh, history has the, the big problem that it is lived forward, but explains itself a lot backwards. So, yes. so at the at that time when you were thinking about all of this Java and Java came up, wh what did you think? Did you really imagine how successful it could be, or was it more like, yeah, it's a nice project, let's do this, but it will never match C or something like that? It it did start out that way. Um, I think. You know, at first it usurped C++ in, in, in the kind of client, um, you know, UI programming space very quickly. You know, it just became so much more because of the sort of rich libraries that you had with it and, and uh, you know, just how easy it was to, to work with. And the fact that, um, you know, there were um, technologies in the browsers uh, that, that sort of made it easy for you to, to, to work with Java in that, in that space. Um, I wasn't so sure about the, about the server side. Um, but as you say, it was a very interesting project. I call it kind of the second golden age of my own career. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, so of course I need to interrupt and ask what was the first then? <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. So the first was when I first joined IBM and I, I was the, uh, one of two people on a team that had for some reason got left alone to write. Uh, to write our own optimizing backend for a, a set of languages. So I learned some of the things that I would put into place, I guess, for, for Testarossa. I, I was able to test out some of those ideas very early on. And that was a very hmm. uh, fun time in my career, just after graduate school, to start to join a team and do, um, you know, very exciting work that was, that was new and that was, you know, largely unsupervised to, a, to, a, to, a, to quite a degree because we were working on uh, a project that, Many people who are more senior in, in IBM didn't think was very important, so they didn't they didn't spend any time sort of looking over our shoulder and making sure we weren't doing stupid things. And I'm sure we were doing some stupid things, but we you know we learned perhaps the hard way and learned how to do smarter things. And um, yeah, then that that transitioned some five years later into that this the start of that second golden age, which I would say went on till probably 2007, and I I changed jobs again. Um, And I would, if you, if, if we're being completist, I guess the third golden age of my career would, would definitely be my time and, you know, reinvented as, as a, a mainframe or, or an IBM Z um, focused person, because that's been um, really just seven years of whirlwind uh, learning and, uh, and exposure to elite engineering, which has always been the part of, of working at IBM that's, that's really appealed to me is, um, you know, our ability to to really engineer things uh, to a very high level. And I think there's nowhere in IBM, perhaps other than the quantum team uh, that's that's been doing this um, than the IBM Z team, both from a hardware and software perspective. And it it shows in the place it plays in the world economy and in our, you know, our clients' uh, IT landscapes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, now we're talking about 25th birthday A question that could come up, because usually when we talk to customers, we still talk about modernization when we talk about, oh, let's do some Java. I mean, yep. one could ask itself, is it then actually still modern? Now, 25 years of Java, 
is it basically legacy too? And of course, we could debate if COBOL is legacy at all. But but if we have this feeling that always in IT something new has to come up. Yeah. So so what are your perspective on that? Well, I mean, you know, I used to write some presentations on you know how to, how to choose your computer language for for a project, and um, you know, to me, some of the some of the important aspects are whether whether it's kind of keeping up with with the times, you know, so. So if you look at failed computer languages or languages that have gone gone out of widespread use, um, you'll see that they they don't keep up. You know, something comes along like XML or JSON or something like that, and they there's no easy way to get to that or work with that. Um, mm. You know, data you know from the language. So you know, that's why I don't include COBOL in that list. It's it is keeping up, um, and with the amount of it in the world, you know, whether you believe it's 200 billion lines or a trillion lines, you know, it's um, it's not going to go away. Now it's not modern, you know. I, I wouldn't say in many ways, you know, it, it's 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 using um, you know some very old ideas in computer languages, but you know, ones that are solving a, a particular set of problems well, and so don't need to be changed. So I think it's much more important not to choose a specific language, but to choose one that is, is mainstream and is keeping up. Because no matter what, um, you, you know, if you're if you're successful in whatever it is you create, it's going to have a duration. And, uh, you know, you, you need to have some confidence that the language you choose will be, you know, vital and, uh, and being, you know, kept modern, if you like, and, uh, and implemented effectively and efficiently, you know, for the lifetime of your application. So it's more like, do you want long lived application or, or programming languages rather than, than whether you want modern and new ones. And so there, there's kind of a middle ground. So, you know, I, I think we're just learning what the duration of, of an IT technology really is. Um, you know, the IBM mainframe is is 60 some years old, I think, and uh, and it's still going strong and, and is very modern in its implementation and the capabilities that it delivers. So, you know, 25 years, you know, if you're comparing to a redwood, that's pretty young. If you're comparing to, <laughs> a, you know, most insects, that's pretty old. So, uh, you know, I think I think we're only learning both the duration of our applications and and how long these kind of technologies you know can last and need to last in order to, to you know to remain like they're, they're delivering value um and it's it's something you know if you get a little philosophical for a moment that i think the the industry is kind of coming to grips with you know we went through a phase where we tried to sort of suck all the cost out of a lot of teams uh, particularly on ibm Z, and we're now learning that these these applications you know their their length of usefulness is exceeds the career duration of, of a person and so you need to have a sustained kind of investment in order to keep uh, a team of, of varying demographic around to to develop and maintain and, and keep that application vital because it could have that kind of lifetime and you know society's figured this out for electricians and plumbers and doctors and and other part you know other professions in society that that you know we need over time but i don't think we've quite figured it out in the it world which is pretty new in the you know in kind of the history of civilization and i think i think when i joined that little philosophical debate here i would say another thing that we will probably figure is that we can't just rewrite everything every other year because we will get more and more it i mean 
if I look around my, my little home office here, I can't just count the number of chips that are in here because every new device has more chips and more chips means a lot more development. And I personally think there's just no good explanation why we would cre recreate everything every other year. And so I think that there are things that will last a lot longer because we will just not be able to rewrite everything. And that will also probably change our perspective on on the on the technology choices and if it is really important that it just needs to be nice fancy and sparkling or if it just does the job and it does it well so we need to maintain it just a little longer yeah i think you see this many examples of that from from everyday life um but but honestly that's one of the sort of first lessons you you have to learn when you when you exit your sort of technology focused um academia and and enter into into a you know, a business or get a job doing, you know, IT of some sort, you, you quickly learn that we, in that world, we do IT for business value, not IT for IT's sake. <laughs> and so um, that's a transition most people have to make because, you know, a lot of us get into it because we're enamored by the technology, you know, we're nerds at heart and, uh, you know, we love cool engineering. I mean, I, you know, two minutes ago in the podcast, you know, I just mentioned how the the big appeal for me is the elite engineering that we that we do, um, you know, in this company. And so, um, you know, that has to be tempered with, uh, you know, like you say, um, you know, every time you have some kind of electrical problem or plumbing problem in your house, you don't rip all the plumbing out and, and redo it or rip all the wiring out and, you know, redo it in, a, in, a, in the new technology, right? So the same thing is going to be true of your of your IT applications. And you you have to start thinking that way in order to to design them in a way that that is durable as well. So there's there's some responsibility on us to, to think about how we design and and uh, create separations of concerns and abstractions to, to make make it possible for us to uh, and standardization to make it possible for us to move forward with something and and uh, you know mix new things and old things, right? So you can put a new faceplate on your or a new switch plate on your into your electrical system. You don't have to change all the electrical system. That's kind of because of standardization and uh, we, we can do the same thing. And I mean, now having said all this and uh, saying that Java, as you, as you mentioned, is kind of very good at adapting new technologies and stuff. Um, I think we forgot to mention, or at least uh, I, I didn't realize we mentioned that we actually open sourced all of our JVM technology a while ago. So, so we are not just like actively adding stuff. We even actually made it available to all the developers in the world to actually even add things if they like to. So, so, so how how, how could you ever imagine that when you when you started the project that all no, of this will no, be sourced? I surely didn't. It was a it was a very proprietary perspective in IBM, and you know we worked with open source. Though. We had the Linux, you know. Uh, operating system on the platform and and on others and so on and so forth. But, you know, there were some areas where we felt like um, the proprietary approach we had was, was, was superior. And um, we've, uh, you know, since learned that you can have your cake and eat it too. And so yes, OMR project is, is the uh, vehicle by which we've placed this technology into open source and now uh, can start to see it being used in a much broader set of circumstances, far beyond Java in point of fact. And, uh, you know, there are other open source projects as well for, for, for Java. So the Java implementation. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's the way you do things. So you have to adapt. Um, even if we weren't thinking that way initially, uh, that's the way we think now. And, uh, and so I think it's a credit to the flexibility of the technology, uh, cause it's no joke to put something into open source. You don't just, um, 
you know, expose your repo and, and you're in open source, right? It has to be something that's consumable by other people. There has to be process around it. There has to be, um, you know, a set of um, committers beyond IBM uh, or, or, or the initial contributor. So, so it's a, it's a big uh, responsibility and it's a big project uh, to do so. So it's, it's a, it's turning a corner into a whole new world, I think of, of applicability for this technology. And I would definitely say it speaks for the superior engineering you did at the time that we actually were able to do that. So um, thank well, you. Many, many of us, many of us at the time. I'll, I'll take a look at it. Uh, I only have you now. You need to be the proxy for all of those guys. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think that is that is that is a, a really nice statement at the end. So we actually were able to adapt not just the way how we develop Java and how Java is developing itself, but also the way how we actually expose it to the world. And I think that speaks a lot for the flexibility. And uh, I personally think probably the last Java program will be retired with the last COBOL program in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, it will be probably in a very, very distant future. So um, lots of new challenges. And maybe in 25 years time, we have to have then a 50th birthday party <laughs> for Java. That sounds like quite a bit of celebratory fun. Yeah. So thank you a lot, Kevin. Uh, thank you for, for enlightening thank us you. a bit with your journey and also helping us uh, to understand that not everyone is a born mainframer, but still can contribute to, uh, contribute to the platform. I think this is also a nice message to you folks out there. Maybe uh, you don't need to be a full-hearted mainframer, but you have to interact with it. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to hear that you even become an IBM fellow uh, that way and end up working in IBM Z. So thank you very much, Kevin. No, thank you, Tobias. It's a, it's and yeah, everyone, uh, please visit ibm.biz slash uh, forward slash Z podcast to listen to other podcasts. And uh, we are also very happy to welcome you here. So please make sure you give us some feedback. Um, try to, to let us know what is interesting to you. And otherwise, we will hear each other on the next podcast. Thank you very much. Bye, guys. Bye.